Just King Things is a podcast about reading the books of Stephen King in publication order. These are largely horror novels and often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. This episode is on the 1975 novel Salem's Lot and has content warnings for substance abuse including alcoholism, automotive accidents and death, misogyny, domestic and child abuse including infant abuse, animal death, ableism, bodily trauma and mutilation, and homophobia and gay panic. friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read the works of Stephen King in publication order. I'm your host, Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Gross. I'm sucking your blood, Michael. (laughs) Uh, Isn't that a gross noise? It is a gross noise. It is a gross noise. It's very, very gross. Um, well, well, I was, uh, you know, that's what I was thinking about because there's someone in this novel, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but there's vampires in this bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and someone says uh, they're hearing vampire stuff going on, you know, hashtag vampire stuff. Yeah. And they say, uh, and then they could hear the sucking and like how, <laughs> how much that, you know, scared them or whatnot. And I just thought in my head, and I probably, while I was reading the book, made the noise out loud. I was just like, <laughs> I, I had the exact same reaction to that line where it's like, if this were real, right, this would be scary. But the problem is in, in fiction, in writing, the word sucking is just very funny. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll, I'll stop doing that. <laughs> okay. Yep. Well, we're talking today about Stephen King's second novel, Salem's Lot from 1975. This came out, what, this is the year after Carrie? Yes, the year after, uh, which is a pretty good turnaround time. Very good turnaround time, and probably, well, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here, but probably the strongest one-two punch in his entire career. It is a very strong one-two punch. It is. Like, just thinking about, like, because Carrie, people have listened to the last episode. If you haven't listened to the last episode, go check that out. But we we enjoyed that. That is a, I think you call it like a, like a, an efficient machine. Mm-hmm. It's a thriller. It is a thriller, 100%. In this book, I want to talk about genre with you at some point mm-hmm. uh, during this, this episode. I'm sure we'll get there. Because it also has qualities of a thriller. It has qualities of a crime procedural through a big chunk of it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it turns into or becomes or or maybe in the rearview mirror now, we call it a horror novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is playing with a whole lot of different feelings and affects and like ways of engaging with the book in the same way that Carrie did. So, mm-hmm. I mean, but I, I think it's a lot more polished. I think that, uh, you know, I don't you're the one who does the research on the writing of these books, Michael. You're the one who goes and checks things out. But I wonder how much of an editorial hand was had in this book. I feel like quite a lot in the same way that the end of Carrie was editorially <laughs> maneuvered. Um, but I think for the better. I think that this has as much Stephen King voice to it, but it has a lot of different parts that we are going to see show up in King again. I mean, 
this is a real solidification of the Stephen King voice mm-hmm. as a writer. And it's also worth noting that while Carrie was a very lean and efficient novel, like 200 pages thereabouts, uh, my paperback of Salem's Lot runs uh, 650 pages, so considerably longer. And yeah. <laughs> you say that like so sadly, what? I, uh, I, I just, I, so I've got, <clears throat> I mean, don't get, don't get too embarrassed and impressed here, Michael, but I have okay. the collector's edition. Oh, is that the one with the illustrations? Uh, no. Oh. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Sadly. Okay. Oh, damn it. There's one with illustrations? There is. Uh, uh, no, it's not. But it has like an introduction by Clive Barker, which I did not read. I don't know if that is in every version of the book now. It's not. Uh, but, but it's like a big... It's a tall book, and it's at about 400 pages. It's kind of the same size as the other one, so uh, uh, like the same dimensions as my version of Carrie. So roughly double the length mm-hmm. if, you know, if you don't have the same versions as we do. Like, it's worth noting also that King, uh, I think in his little dedicatory, it's like, maybe it's at the beginning. Um, I'm flipping through this now quick. Uh, I can't find it, but he mentions it as a big book. I think it is in his acknowledgments, right? He says there's a lot of help that goes into writing a big book, as he calls it. And this mm. is King's kind of first big book that is also, as, as you said, I think, um, had some editorial intervention and is therefore not as stymied by some of the things that I think bog down his later big books. But we will talk about that in the future. Uh, this is all to say that Salem's Lot, uh, in it, it's really good. Like, this novel is great. Like, I love it. It's really good uh, across the board. I think, like, every part of it is good. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, this is a book above reproach or critique. We will get there, I promise you. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of people, there's a lot of, like, 1970s Stephen King in here. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, in the know. same way that Carrie, like, we talked about the things uh, in Carrie that worked, that worked really, really well. And then the things that are kind of uh, worth taking a second look at. Uh, And I think, you know, I think that's going to be a thing that we do throughout this show is talking about what works in a novel and what doesn't and uh, being able to appreciate the things that we appreciate uh, while acknowledging the things that stink really, really stink. Yeah. Um, And, you know, there's some of that in here, too. But I think it's really interesting. So, you know, I think you and I had a had a conversation maybe at the end of the last episode or or sometime in the in the, the intermediary period here. Uh, or this this has historically been one of my favorite Stephen King novels. And reading it this time I actually cooled on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't I don't quite know why. Maybe we can maybe we can work through it. But something that I find really fascinating about it, just like pure enjoyment, non-enjoyment, whatever, is that the cast of characters that Stephen King uh, begins to feel comfortable with in this book is like an order of magnitude larger mm-hmm. than Carrie. I mean, mm-hmm. there are gosh, probably 60 named characters in this book. Mm -hmm. And uh, King has this habit, if you've never read a Stephen King book, um, King has a habit of, uh, at the end of a novel, he will put the date that he started writing and then the date that he finished writing. Now, I don't know how he assigns these dates, right? If it's like the the day he sits down and starts writing the first chapter or the day he starts note-taking or uh, the day he finishes the manuscript or the day he turns it into his editor, I have no idea. But uh, this book was written from October 1972 through June 1975. Uh, So that's, I think, longer than the entire time that he was writing Carrie. And you, mm-hmm. I think you see in the novel itself kind of that extended uh, 
uh, like that extended investment, you see how that pays off for him. Yeah, he seems to be able to keep Stephen King can keep more in his head in a novel than I can keep in my head in a Stephen King novel. <laughs> Famously, he claims that he does not outline. Yes, that, that's a big thing. Uh, we, you know, we'll get to several of those different claims, I think, in Dance Macabre, which is going to come up fairly soon. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we get to on writing, you know, he talks about his process several times and I don't know how heavy he is into substance abuse at this point. Michael, you probably know better, but, you know, he kind of is a, you know, you write a certain number of pages a day. I think he's a 10 page a day guy. Mm -hmm. uh, we see Ben Mears in this novel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically just being Stephen King, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, he's just writing, like following the plot and making it go. And I think a lot of coherence in a Stephen King novel probably comes in the editing phase for these early novels, you know, of making sure all these things attach and make sense together and things like that. And I think again, like you said a minute ago, I think that that starts accounting for some of the things that get a little bit more loose in his mm -hmm. later work. Yeah. Uh, so I guess just to, just to start out, uh, do we want to do the five sentence summary? Sure. All right. I'm stretching. I'm stretching. I'm getting ready. Okay. All right. I did the last one. So this one's for you, Cameron. Okay. Five sentences. <clears throat> Salem's Lot is a small town in Maine with a dark history. That, that's my first sentence. Okay. Earlier than the novel... A gangster lived there with his wife and did all kinds of bad things. And then later in the 1950s, a young boy named Ben Mears went to the house where the mobster gangster lived, where, comma, where the gangster had died some years <laughs> earlier, uh, close parentheses, and went to the top of the stairs and saw his ghostly form. Okay, that's two sentences. Well, this, is this is getting hard. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> uh, years later, Ben Mears returns to the town, now a famous writer, and decides to begin writing a novel to work through his feelings about that experience he had as a child. There are lots of kooky characters that live in the town of Salem's Lot, and many of them have dark secrets, but generally they're nice main folk. Okay, this is four sentences. We gotta make this last one count, I think. Vampires show up and ruin the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> and I know I spent a lot of that summary talking about one guy and one thing, but that really is kind of the book. I mean, the, the book is uh, one... We, we are presented with a character who has a very particular kind of goal. He goes to Salem's Lot to accomplish that goal. He meets a whole bunch of people. There's a big cast of characters, like I said earlier. Um, but ultimately, he's trying to do one thing. And then about halfway through the novel, you realize, oh, there's vampires here. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a vampire novel, and they, they run into those vampires. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that I, I'm the one who does the research, so I will say that one of the big impacts that King's editor at, I, I believe he was at Doubleday still for this, because uh, Doubleday mm -hmm. published Carrie, and they published, I think, the first four or five books he did. Um, his editor at Doubleday, uh, so to back up, originally, Salem's Lot uh, was a book called Second Coming, after after the Yeats poem, and... Um, as I believe, I believe it's attributed to, to Tabitha King. Um, 
uh, she said she didn't like the title because it sounds like a pornographic novel. <laughs> she she is uh, day by day saving this man. From she like there are so many there are so many stories that Stephen King tells of his wife just like being like, hold up. <laughs> Yeah, hold on. Why don't you do this other thing? Why don't you write that novel about the uh, the psychic girl? And he's like, all right, I guess I will. I guess I'll become a world famous author. Uh, but um, yeah. So so uh, Tabitha gets the name change. Thank you, Tabitha. Uh, but the other thing that happens is that this book is a lot more similar to Carrie in its earlier drafts because King. Uh, it's it's in, like Carrie. This book doesn't have one continuous sort of point of view. It it shuttles around between various characters and um, different sort of scales of characters and that sort of thing. Uh, one of the and it also has some tiny documentary bits, some uh, things kept in like a scrapbook, right? Old newspaper clippings and so on. Mm -hmm. um, that's much less present here than it was in Carrie, but originally uh, there were big chunks of like folklore guides and uh, information about vampires that was just sort of slotted in between character and plot bits. That was, I guess, to provide sort of exposition about what vampires are in case people didn't know. Uh, but what King's editor told him was like, listen, um, your readers are not going to necessarily assume that vampires are at work here, right? They're not going to assume that something supernatural is going on. Uh, so if you cut these out, you can actually make the you can make this a mystery and have the vampire turn be a be a reveal. And that is actually how the novel functions. Even though I think in in the popular imagination now this book is synonymous with vampires. We in the same way we all know what happens to Carrie at prom. Um, we know that Salem's Lot is a story about vampires. Uh, structurally, the text still works in kind of this mystery way. And I actually think a thing that I did not appreciate in my previous... This, this is at least the third time I've read this book. Um, a thing that I know I did not appreciate earlier uh, that I appreciated now is how uh, keenly this novel is uh, honing in on the satanic panic. And sort of this fear of uh, in, in, you know, late 70s, early 80s America, basically post uh, The Exorcist that that kind of kicks off the uh, arguably right, like sort of the, the modern wave of horror of which King is a part. We have this real anxiety about like, what are the Satanists doing in America? All of these Satanists having having their black masses out in in, in here, the good old U.S. of A., uh, and then, of course, the, the year after this, we get uh, in 1976, we get The Omen, um, which also slots into this ideas of demons, demonic possession. And for a good long while, it is sort of a question in this book of like, are these are these dudes just like are these weird, mysterious people who have shown up in town just like some Satanists? And we get a lot of clues kind of suggesting that until the truth turns out to be a, a lot more weird and horrible. Yeah, and uh, especially, and I, I, I guess what's cool about it is, like you're saying, the the book unfolds in a particular kind of way and keeps a lot of things ambiguous. And I agree. I think it would be great. I, I think it would be excellent if, like, someone could find someone else. That's it. The end. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> but if you could find someone who who doesn't know anything about Salem's Lot and then give it to them and then like pull their reaction, you know, did you know it was a vampire novel? Because that stuff really doesn't kick in for a very long time. I was really surprised. We're not introduced to to critical key characters until halfway through the novel. 
I'll say like it we do not get hard confirmation that this is a vampire novel until literally like the almost the exact midpoint. Um, and, but but what's cool about that too about the kind of satanic panic moral panic stuff that you're talking about is that it, it's not like there's one thing and then another. You know, it's not like oh we thought it was satanic panic stuff or we thought it was dark rites and and you know rituals and things like that satanism and then it turned out to be vampires. I think King is like really tied into the the like moral logic of the U.S. at mm-hmm. the time because it's both. Right. It is satanic stuff that is that then gives over into vampires um, as opposed to we thought it was one thing than another. So I think that's it's it gets to play uh, kind of both pieces of that. And, and to me, it really feels like Stephen King saying, look, you know, y'all are focused on uh, one really boring part of weird <laughs> occult stuff. You could be America focused on another really cool part. Um, and you get this kind of resuscitation in the 1960s and 1970s here. I mean, this is in part, this is the 70s, but I think it's part of a, a run in the time period of the rejuvenation of the interest of someone like Lovecraft, which is mm-hmm. in here. I mean, he uses Lovecraft's name more than one time through the character of Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really get this vibe that Stephen King's trying to be like, hey, look, uh, there's other cool stuff to look at. There's other weird, dark things in the American imaginary that you could be pulling on. Mm-hmm. So uh, apart from the five sentence summary, another way of thinking about this book, and this is explicit. So King writes this book, at least partly while he is teaching uh, high school English at a school called Hampton Academy. And he is teaching a course on fantasy and science fiction. And uh, he he teaches Dracula, Bram Stoker's, uh, I think, 1899, 1897, very, very close to 1900. Uh, Anyway, Dracula, you know what Dracula is. You don't need me to explain Dracula. Uh, But King gets the idea uh, of what would happen if Dracula, who in the novel, by Stoker is this Transylvanian aristocrat who is also a vampire, surprise, uh, choosing to move to England basically because he, he feels like Dracula feels like England is the wave of the future. Uh, like the, the there's a, a way in which uh, Stoker's novel is very much a part of the Victorian idea that like you know, the, the United Kingdom had achieved modernity and left behind sort of the old world superstitions of the continent. Uh, and so the 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 fear in Dracula, right, or at least one of the fears, there's a whole lot of stuff going on with Dracula, is what happens if this representative of the old continental European, like more like backward European uh, uh ethos right this old feudal lord because that is quite literally what dracula is he is uh within within the dracula novel he's he's like oh they're like oh he might be vlad the impaler right so Mm -hmm. uh uh dracula decides well you know i'm i'm functionally immortal i shall go to england and you know establish a new empire right uh a, a new empire of the undead so the basic thought behind Salem's Lot is what if Dracula, instead of going to late 19th century England, uh, went to 1970s United States? And he didn't go to a big city because, and this is another conversation that uh, King has with um, Tabitha and I think a friend of theirs. Like they have dinner and, and they get onto this topic of like what would happen if Dracula came 
to America, like right now. Um, and Tabitha says he would be uh, run down by a taxi cab as he walked out of the Port Authority bus terminal. And and Barlow says that in yes. this novel. Yes, uh, Barlow, the, the the Dracula analog in this novel, says if I went to New York City, I would have been run over by a handsome cab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but but yeah, I mean the whole the whole logic here, and, and there's some other stuff going on too. King is pretty pretty explicit that like America is ripe for vampirism in like mm-hmm. a particular kind of way. Um, but uh, but but there but there's a similar the relationship you're pointing to here is one where Dracula or the vampire represent time being out of joint. Mm-hmm. No, not not to not to uh, rip you off here, but, <laughs> uh, but right it's it's uh, hauntological in the Derridian way. And if if people don't know what that means, you don't need to because I'm going to explain it. Um, the idea is that that something from the past is is uh, latent in the conditions of the present, and then the conditions of the present change in such a way as to make that imminent or rise again. So the past is never truly past; um, it is uh, waiting to be born in the moment. And the idea here is that in Salem's Lot, in the notion of the small town in rural Maine, in the way that small towns function. In relationship to things like great evil, and I, I could see in the notes that that we're going to be talking about that too. But it can set the conditions under which those old things that we seem to have dismissed with modernity, like you're talking about in the original Dracula, where those things can kind of bloom again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the implication being that the vampire was always here; there mm-hmm. just wasn't a vampire to activate it, right? To activate this kind of of evil necessity uh, that, that vampirism brings out in the community. Um, and and that's really kind of done by this Ben Mears character. I mean, Michael, what did you think about Ben Mears as, a, as I don't know, a Kingian character? So Ben Mears is our first, uh, he's another King type, right? This is another type of character we are going to see versions of again and again. Perhaps the type of character we're going to see the most of, maybe. He is the writer protagonist. And as usual, when there is a writer protagonist, it is very hard not to see the uh, person as essentially a cipher for King himself in a lot of ways, especially in the ways that he is described. He's sort of, uh, he's he's got like dark hair. He is... Uh, He tends toward, like, sensitivity and being artistic, right? He writes, he's, as an author, he is emphatically not Stephen King because he is writing what we would today call literary fiction. At least that Mm -hmm. seems to be the idea that we're getting, right? Uh, Like, with titles like Conway's Daughter and Air Dance. Air Dance. I I love the idea that this man has written a book called Air Dance. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) so we, we have... Uh, this sort of alternative king who wrote a different type of fiction and made his name that way. Um, But also, and this is very important, he is, he has a working class background. He knows Mm -hmm. what it's like to work with his hands. At the beginning of the novel, we have uh, the boy and the man who are uh, Ben Mears, that's the man, and then the boy who is Mark Petrie. We don't know their names yet, but we get like this epilogue of them, uh, you know, fleeing from Maine uh, down across the United States into Mexico. And as they're doing this, we have uh, the man stopping and working in like textile mills and all of these jobs that don't exist anymore. Like (laughs) all of these manufacturing jobs that I guess, you know, would have been uh, pretty available in 1974, 1975. Um, But uh, we have 
in the novel proper, Ben's showing up. He's he's sort of made his name as this novelist, and he's come back to Salem's Lot to revisit his childhood trauma and use that to write a book. Now, the thing that is strange about this is that he had a wife who died named Miranda. Um, he was in a motorcycle accident, and uh, they, they, they hit a, a wet patch on the road, and they skid, and... Um, he, he ends up being like, there, there's either like not a scratch on him or he's like minorly injured, but his he wife. He gets a scratch on the back of his left hand. Yes. It's very specific and small. <laughs> uh, but his wife, his wife straight up dies. Um, and he is now sort of living in the aftermath of this. And, you know, the idea, I guess, is that he is, he's going back to Salem's Lot to sort of trigger a kind of creative process by confronting this demon from his past. It's sort of strange to me how, like, he, he maybe thinks about his dead wife twice in the first 300 pages of this book. And, and one is directly in comparison with a new woman yes. he has seen. Uh, actually, maybe both times. <laughs> or, or, or just to be like, oh, yeah, this this uh, Susan Norton girl reminds me a lot of my dead wife. Yep. Uh, my, my dead wife, who who was named Miranda, and the most we get is that uh, he didn't like when Miranda was asking him about what he was writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's really hard. You know, I, I think I think you're you're getting your way around to this, Michael, but I'm just going to say it directly. It's really, really hard not to read this as Stephen King fantasizing about his wife dying. <laughs> and, and I don't think that's the intent. And I'm not trying to psychologize the novel. But when you create a character that's basically you and then you have a wife that seems very similar to your own wife. I mean, she's providing feedback for his novels and mm -hmm. you know, being, I mean, doing all the stuff that you were talking about Tabitha King really doing. It's, it's, it's weird. And, and they love motorcycles and we know Stephen King loves a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, his protagonists are going to ride motorcycles for the next 40 years. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of, it's, it's weird. It just feels weird to read it and be like, gosh, it really feels like a man fantasizing about his yeah. dead wife. Yeah, and the other part of this, the only thing that I think saves Ben Mears from ending up feeling, um, like, really kind of gross is just, like, how corny he is as a character. <laughs> like, he is our central character, and at the same time, he is just a very corny dude. Uh, actually, in a way that is, I think, itself evocative of King, right? Yeah, he's he's a character who all his beliefs are on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's really no interiority other than these thoughts about his wife and maybe a little bit of protectiveness about his novels. It's it's not like there's hidden depths to Ben Mears that we don't get, right? I mean, this is not... I, I would say that this is a stock character. And and when you and I were talking about this novel on, uh, on Discord, you know, just chatting about it while we were reading it, you compared it to Dickens. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's very a, a very apt comparison. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so to jump back into the 19th century... Uh, Charles Dickens, uh, if I'm sure people have heard of Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol and all that stuff. Um, but if you have never read Dickens, uh, one of the things that is really cool about Charles Dickens as a writer is that he will write, like King, these huge sprawling novels with dozens of characters in them. And they're all uh, simultaneously like cartoons of people. And uh, for Dickens, they'll very often have like made up cartoonish names, uh, whereas King will tend toward more realistic names, right? He, he's more, um, more of a realist in that regard. Uh, but at the same time, they are united because their characters are always exaggerated or they're always, or not always, but they uh, tend toward um, a kind of caricatureness or a cartoonishness. Uh, and the thing that becomes dis 
distinguishing about both Dickens and King is that they are very, very good at creating these caricatures, but then imbuing them with just enough like flavor or personal context to make them feel like unique and vital for the purposes of the story. Absolutely. And, and it's different, I, you know, to, to think of a uh, comparative, right? It's different than like Jane Austen, where mm -hmm. Jane Austen is also really great at character. I mean, you know, I think that probably one of the best stylists as far as character has in English literature um, across the board. But her her power as a writer of character is that you get layer and layer and layer and layer. I mean, you get uh, a, a development of character and an implication of character. There are things in Jane Austen's novels that are just left unsaid, mm -hmm. right? And that unsaidness or the kind of gap that's made between what someone says and how they obviously feel, that produces character in this kind of uh, ambivalent space. So you get to know people by the absences as well as the inclusions. That's not the case in King. You do not get to know anyone by, by you know, the impression that they make on the world. You get to know them because they basically are stating their feelings in that I, I think the word uh, cartoonish is, is useful. Not cartoonish in the sense of like, they're buffoons, but they're two-dimensional. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Ben Mears is a writer. He's artistic. He's a little bit uh, of a working-class guy. He's got a dead wife, and he mm -hmm. thinks about it occasionally. Yep. That's it. Like, right. There's not more to him. He hates vampires, I guess. <laughs> well, eventually. Eventually. He gets to the point where he hates vampires. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah. Uh, that's that's Ben. Uh, and he is kind of the, the center around which all of the other characters orbit. Uh, like, everyone... Like, Ben does not meet every single character in this novel, uh, but Ben is the way that we, the reader, get into Salem's lot and understand this place, its history, and who its people are. To, to give you an idea of how this novel works, uh, there, are, there are chapters uh, that are named after the character who that chapter is primarily associated with, and then that chapter gets subdivided into sections. So, for instance, our first real chapter is called Ben, and then we get a later chapter that is primarily, again, from Ben's point of view, and it's called, like, Ben 2. Uh, whereas the, we also get other chapters. Uh, there's, a, there's a series of chapters, three of them called The Lot, that are just from the town's point of view. Uh, and this should sound familiar if you've listened to the Carrie episode about the, the kind of way that King can telescope uh, who he has in kind of his narratological uh, crosshairs, who we're looking through or uh, at at any given point in time. Yeah, and this is, I think, uh, this is the fastest, I don't, I don't know, we'll, we'll get there at some point maybe where we can kind of make uh, strong claims here, but I'm going to say here that uh, that there's a big development here between uh, Carrie and this book. Because in Carrie, we, when we were giving the broad per, or given the broad perspective of something, it was either through a news article that had like several perspectives quoted in it, or it was through an individual person that we just didn't, you know, uh, see the world through for very long. So, for example, the principal mm -hmm. in Carrie, where we get this little perspective on the world, but then we we go away from it. That's still present here, but instead of those articles, like you were talking about, how the editor made these changes. Instead of those articles, we get this kind of free-floating camera that from one sentence to the next will be talking about radically different parts of the town. So, you know, we'll get two sentences about 
uh, a character who is like hanging out at the gas station and then we'll get three sentences about people watching TV all the way across town and so it's very cinematic and, and you know I think we used that episode or that word last time too but where it's sweeping kind of across this very small town and basically saying all these pieces all these people are are kind of spread out everywhere doing their own thing and it's through this kind of almost population shift right like or, or a species move, um, <laughs> you know, as the novel progresses, the way that these people are arranged in the world changes and, and some of them turn into vampires. And it's that process of change that makes us go like, Oh, Holy shit. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the last chapter about the lot, the, I guess the third one mm-hmm. uh, really begins with like the town was dead and it didn't know it. Yeah. And we, and we know it because we know what these people have been doing the entire novel and now they are they just don't exist anymore or they're tucked away under hay uh, you know somewhere because they have already been transformed and so it's a it, it, this it's this camera that's like very haunting I think um, it, it, it's uh, yeah I don't know it's really an effective storytelling uh, yeah. mechanism well I want to say like uh, Carrie was a book I enjoyed right I think there's a lot of good stuff happening in Carrie uh, but it is mostly a thriller uh, Salem's Lot. Like, Salem's Lot gets fucking scary. Yeah. Like, this, like, there is, like, scary stuff in this book. Like, it is, it is, um, disturbing and, uh, like, capital H horror in a way that Carrie isn't. Even though Carrie has plenty of, you know, blood and guts, um, there is, uh, there's an existential quality to, to the horror in this novel that, I mean, is, for me, is very effective, right? Um, like, there are parts in, like, Again, I've read this novel at least three times, and I remember being scared to death by certain aspects of this uh, when I was reading it when I was, like, friggin' Mark Petrie's age. Um, And there are parts of it now that, like, I am still unsettled by, right? I see it, and I'm like, oh, that's good, right? Like, that is, it is good how how good this, it's good how well this little, like, uh, creepiness has has been constructed. Like, like what you talk about... um, the the last uh, chapter about the lot where so to actually back up a little bit the first chapter about the lot is really fascinating uh, because it's an exercise it's another exercise in genre where we start at the beginning of the day it's like four o'clock in the morning or maybe even earlier uh, and we have the town milkman getting up and we follow him on his rounds uh, from one side of town to the other. And this entire chapter is set up like, you know, four o'clock a.m. And it tells a story about what happens in the lot at 4 a.m., five o'clock a.m. And it tells a story about someone else doing like, you know, yeah, it's it's like the there's a dairy farm outside of town and like the um, the sons of the guy who owned the dairy farm, like they mm-hmm. have to get up and set up the milking machines. And we get a little bit about how, uh, you know, one of the sons really like hates going to school he wishes his dad would let him quit school and uh just work at the dairy farm and then we get another hour and we we see the town throughout an entire day and we get introduced to all of these characters going about their like very uh stereotypical small town lives right if, if you can think of uh like small town drama uh if you if you're from a small town you know what that is and even if you've engaged with like a soap opera uh, you you know what we're talking about. It's like uh, people are having affairs. People have other types of unhappy marriages. There are um, parents who are like you know abusing their children, uh, and uh, there's like 
love triangles and so on and so forth. You run a boarding house and the people who live there don't wash their dishes. <laughs> right. Uh, so King is engaging with this long tradition and a couple of these writers actually get shouted out early in the novel. Um, this tradition of like American middle class uh, novels or stories that are about towns and the people who live there. So the other thing mm -hmm. that King was teaching uh, when he conceived the idea for Salem's Lot was Thornton Wilder's play Our Town, which is very much this. It's it's, it's a kind of strange meta theatrical play, but it's about, you know, uh, uh, a bunch of characters in a town and sort of their evolving relationships over, over the course of, of uh, a couple of years. Um, so there's that. Uh, he, I think, shouts out uh, Edgar Lee Masters, who was a poet who wrote uh, the, the Spoon River Anthology, which is a book of poems that are uh, from the perspective of people from a small town. Like, everyone's like, every poem is like a little monologue, but the conceit of the monologue is that this person is dead and you're listening to their thoughts in their grave. Mm. Um, and something like uh, Sherwood Anderson's uh, Winesburg, Ohio, which is a very short novel, but it's like a series of short stories. Each chapter is about a different person in the town, but they all have kind of relationships and interlocking kind of mechanisms. And um, so King is... is uh, uh, playing with that quite explicitly, right? He is he is writing, like, the entire first chapter of The Lot is basically him writing a version of this type of story. And then by the end, when we go through the, the last chapter about The Lot and the town is already dead but doesn't know it, um, you get this really, like, effective uncanniness where, like, the boys who have to get up in the morning uh, and milk the cows, like, their dad's angry because the boys haven't gotten up and milked the cows. Well, why haven't they? It's because they're sleeping in the hayloft because their friend from school visited them the night before and turned them, right? Uh, and it's, you, we don't know a lot about these characters, but you learn enough to make the state changes work. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 get. I mean, it's a talent that he has as a writer, right? To it, and it has to do with that kind of stock cartoonishness, right? Like, it's two brothers that one doesn't like the other one because he gets his father's attention too much, mm -hmm. and like that's it. Like that's all you really need to know about them. That's accomplished in a page, and then it's literally what a paragraph when they're when they're revealed to be in the hayloft, and that is it's uncanny. I mean, it literally uncanny in the Freudian sense of we can understand that relationship and at least extrapolate from it that, oh yeah, this is, these are two brothers who are young that have jealousy, mm -hmm. right? A very old story. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and none of that matters anymore because they have been kind of ripped from the human fold. Right. And like that uncanny effect is partly, uh, because we are like taking characters who we meet in one genre and we just like rip that genre away. Right. Like, Absolutely. They, like the, the, the story they were supposed to have is not the story they have anymore. Yes. Yeah. They are, they were in a drama and now they are in, or in a soap opera, right? In a melodrama. Mm -hmm. And now they are in a horror story. I think that's a great way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe we should talk just really briefly or to outline all the major characters here. Yeah, we should. So we can talk about some other pieces of the plot here. Yeah. Uh, cause I think otherwise you and I will speak for 40 minutes about the weird way that Stephen King writes this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so we got, we already got Ben Mears. Mm -hmm. We, we have, uh, Susan Norton, who we've already yep. mentioned before. Susan Norton is in her 20s, maybe? Mm -hmm. Early 20s? She's a recent graduate, um, and she's come back. She's from Salem's Lot. It's her hometown. She went to Boston College, and she's come back to Salem's Lot, and she is now a school teacher, but she also wants to be a painter. 
Yeah, she she wants to go to New York and become like a designer, basically, mm-hmm. or, or that's one of her thoughts of what she could be doing. She's living with her parents. She's not particularly happy about that. And uh, she, her and Ben Mears get involved with one another. Immediately. Uh, immediately. Like, the day, literally, I think the day he shows up. He shows <laughs> up in town. He's walking through the park. He sees her sitting, uh, like, in the park reading one of his novels. Mm-hmm. And that's how, how they convenient. Stri- right. And then that's how they strike up their conversation. And she's very smitten with him. Yeah, this is a very Stephen Kingy kind of character, too. She's like, um, I don't even know if this is a stock character beyond Stephen King, but but I feel like this character shows up in his work a lot, which is like an attractive young woman who is as smart as she is attractive mm-hmm. and ultimately runs into a bad ending. Yes. No, this yep. uh, this is another Stephen King type of character and very often is the love interest for the writer character. Yeah. Uh, yeah yes. I mean, Stephen King loves a woman who reads a book. Mm-hmm. So there are those characters. There is Matt. Uh, what's his last name? Matt Burke. Matt Burke, who is a teacher mm-hmm. at, at the local school. I was going to say, he's another Stephen King stock character. He is uh, he is the cool ol- older dude. <laughs> Right. This is this character shows up in in slightly different forms. But in this case, he is uh, the local like high school English teacher who, uh, you know, he's the English teacher. So he's read he's he he knows some things. Right. He can quote some poetry, uh, but he has no problem going to the roadhouse on a Friday night and getting a couple of drinks and he can shoot the shit and make some make some cool jokes. Right. And he listens to some rock music. Uh, He's 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 kind of he, he. this character very often in in a Stephen King novel is going to he's he's going to be Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and you'll notice all three of these characters. Uh, we talked about this last time in the Carrie episode, but the a marker of being good, being a good like capital G good in a, in a Stephen King novel is you're smart and you're cultured mm-hmm. like those things being culturally curious, being involved in things that is almost universally a sign of being a good character. And uh I, I wrote this in my notes too. Uh, later in the novel, uh, mm-hmm. they are discussing vampire shit, like all these characters that we're in the middle of outlining. They're all discussing vampire stuff, and Matt says, uh, "I'm gonna." He says like triumphantly, "I'm gonna start a notebook." <laughs> yes. and, and that and that's when I was like, "This is uh, if I am cast in a Stephen King novel, this is this is me." Unfortunately. So I had a question about this. In Cameron's notes, uh, listener, um, he has written, if I am Matt, then Michael is Donald Callahan. Yeah, absolutely. So can we can we unpack this? We need to explain who Callahan is, but I want to know what you mean by that. Well, explain explain Donald Call- Callahan, Father Callahan, and then I'll, I'll explain the comparison. All right. So uh, Father Callahan or Donald Callahan uh, is the uh, priest in Salem's Lot. He is, uh, you know, the, the priest of the local Catholic church. Um, he is an interesting character because... He is not in this novel very much, but I remember him very strongly from previous readings, but he doesn't really start doing stuff until maybe like the final third, which is... Yeah, I mean, he's the iconic character from this, and it's it's how his story ends, which I, we're going to talk about in a bit, yeah. but, but 100%. Like, in my mind, when I went back to read this, I was like, oh, hell yeah, we're going to get all that Donald Callahan stuff, and like, yeah, he doesn't show up until the, the back third. Yeah, so uh, Callahan uh, fits very well into the satanic panic vogue that we're that I mentioned earlier, right? Like 
we 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 have a a priest in a novel that postdates the exorcist so there's a lot of uh cultural expectation working here um and we want to talk about sort of you know broadly drawn characters uh dom callahan is a priest he drinks probably too much you know you know how priests do uh and he he might have some problems with his faith right he he might have felt more strongly about uh, the true existence of God and the operation of God in the world uh, when he was younger, but very specifically, uh, he feels kind of alienated from uh, the way that the church has turned toward issues of social justice, um, because to him, uh, the church's, uh, you know, crusade in combating evil was, it, it used to be something grander than that. It used to be something more mythological. It wasn't quite uh, so bound up in, in sort of this petty day-to-day -day stuff. He's not like a total reactionary about this. It's more of a sense of like, you know, he, he had a different picture of what good and evil looked like when he was a kid and he grew up and he is kind of at, he's kind of at sea in this way where he wishes he could do good in the world, but also doesn't really feel empowered to do it and doesn't really have sort of the imagination to think through the way that he he could do that. Yeah, he has a, he has a long section in there where he's talking about the difference between capital E evil and small E evil, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the idea that like all the other cool young priests who are t attacking evil in the 1970s, they're all dealing with like, um, I forget, like, uh, homophobia is one of them, but like mm -hmm. the women's lib movement and all this kind of stuff. And, and Callahan says, and I think this is very revealing about his character. He says the only one of those movements he could ever, uh, see himself aligned with is the anti-war movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and now that's over. So he can't even do that. I mean, he wanted to be a warrior for, for God basically. And like, mm -hmm. that's not a thing in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So do you want to explain why he's me? Cause I'm, I, based on what I've just said, I want to know. <laughs> Yeah, I wrote this in a, uh, it, when he talks about Callahan, eventually everyone gets together. We have we have a couple more characters to talk about, but eventually everyone gets together. And it's in a very similar scene to the one I was talking about uh, with Matt starting a notebook. Um, and uh, Callahan is very quick to be like, okay, yeah, vampires, they exist. Um, and they're, they're talking about that. And he says, well, uh, he, I think he talked to someone who went to a small part of a very rural part of their parish somewhere in New England. And uh, the people there like believed that a, a young girl had been killed by a succubus, like a like a sex mm -hmm. vampire. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then that was just true because like there and there was all this evidence of it. And so, you know, Callahan basically says like, well, you know, uh, it, when you sign on to the whole Catholic priest thing, you got to start. You just have to accept some things like this. <laughs> like, you know, they just got to be true. But every turn at this novel, the Matt character is constantly like. I guess I'll figure that out. Yeah, I'll do that. And then he, bad stuff happens to him. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Donald Callahan just knows all of this already. It has like very <laughs> good historical backing for it. And, uh, and also has a bad ending, but at least like it, it works out in some ways for him. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like, you know, I, I think that if you and I are put into a vampire novel, chances okay. of us uh, both dying, or in a Stephen King novel in a general sense, uh, chances of us dying, both of us dying, nearly 100%. Mm -hmm. Just due to our stock character-ness, mm -hmm. right? We, we just don't have the, the Stephen King central character flair to us. Mm -mm. I've never uh, driven a motorcycle, not even once. Will not touch one. Yeah, it's, it just seems dangerous, and that's why we will never be uh, <laughs> Stephen King central characters. But uh, Matt is doing his research by reading Vampirella, 
Yes. And Donald, Car- Donald Callahan has like learned all the occult information from the Catholic Church. And I think that creates a very clear dividing line between where I'm at in my life and where you're at in your life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. I'm glad we've established this. I am I I'm not as insulted by the comparison as I was initially. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not like the uh, the the alcoholic priest fart or anything like that. It's the, it's their approach to the problem <laughs> that that I think is in front of them. Great. Um, um, so we have, who else do we got here? I was going to say Jimmy. You got Jimmy. I don't. What is his last name? I don't. Uh, have Cody. Jimmy Cody. Jimmy Cody is Matt Burke's uh, uh, personal physician. Not like personal physician, like he has him on retainer, but like his his the doctor that uh, Matt Burke sees, uh, and he is. A former student of Matt Burke's, uh, I, I don't remember if we said this, but Matt Burke is like older. Um, so mm-hmm. he he like taught Susan when she was in high school and he taught uh, Jimmy Cody when Jimmy Cody was in high school. Um, and Jimmy Cody is another like he fits in with this group of good characters because he is educated. Um, he's he's a little sarcastic. Uh, like there's a bit where he is inspecting a body and he takes the pulse and he says like very flatly like oh he's dead right like that's the kind of that's like that's the kind of doctor Jimmy Cody is. This is something I'm, we're going to explore over the course of the show, but but I think this this Stephen King stock character, the like really educated guy who's like good for knowledge and, mm-hmm. and has like a little bit of a sarcastic bit of humor, that character is going to show up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but this I think is just Stephen King's brother. Who, yes. Who gets talked about occasionally when in Stephen King's uh, short story collections, right? He always has those notes at the end that kind of talk about uh, where he got inspiration for the short stories and things like that. We'll talk about that when we get to Night Shift. Um, But uh, Stephen King's brother, right? He's a scientist of some sort. And basically every time Stephen King consults information about science in any general way, in the short stories, he's always like, yeah, I just asked my brother about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I think that this stock character is like uh, always a light play on the relationship that Stephen King has with his brother. That's just pure speculation. But I, 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 I buy it. Right. Because because there is a there is a clear fondness for the character, like a very personal fondness. Yeah. Uh, even though Jimmy, like comparatively, doesn't really get a whole lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who do we have left? Is it just Mark? Just Mark, I think, yeah. Okay, so then we have Mark Petrie. Who's 10 or 12? He's a, little, yeah. he's a kid, a child. He's a very... He, uh, so, as I said, when I first read this book, I was I was Mark's age, right? 10 or 12 or whatever. Um, and there is no one you would rather be when you're a 12-year-old boy than be Mark Petrie. Or at least if you're, if you're like a, a, a bookish boy, right? A boy who reads Stephen King novels, like you want to be Mark Petrie because he, he's, he's like, a, he understands that the adult world is kind of a, a, a big ordeal over nothing, right? He, he sort of senses in, instinctively uh, kind of the arbitrariness and the, the sort of boring day-to-dayness of adult life. Uh, and he reads lots of monster magazines and he has like a whole like uh, monster model kit. And so he knows all the vampire lore and like independently, right, of all these adult characters, uh, like a vampire shows up at Mark's bedroom window one night. And his response is essentially like, ah, hell, it's a vampire. Got to do something about this. It uses a uh, like a like a Gundam model. It's not a Gundam model, but it it predates the, the Gundam model. But it's mm-hmm. the same idea. It's like a, 
like a universal movie monster model uh, mm-hmm. cross and he like rips it out of his little you know diorama and you know scares yeah. a vampire away with it and sort of his character note right is that he is just com- like not really completely unfazed right he is like oh man vampires that's a problem but the fact that vampires exist is in no way surprising to him he just sort of like rolls with it and of course the first time we meet him which is just uh and this is again like this novel gets into the corny bits right the first time we meet him we meet him through the eyes of his would-be bully because mark is the new kid his family just moved to salem's lot um and so there's this uh kid who is the the bully in in salem's lot middle school or whatever and he's like ah i gotta go uh beat the crap out of that petri kid to sort of show him you know how things are around here and uh what mark ends up doing is essentially if you've seen ryan johnson's film brick uh, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is, you know, this sort of gangly, thin, bespectacled uh, uh, um, boy with, like, long, flowing dark hair or whatever, uh, who just, like, when he gets into a fight, takes off his glasses and then just beats the ever-loving crap out of people. This is what Mark does, right? He he makes his slightness uh, an advantage by, like, dodging out of the bully's way and then, like, getting the bully onto the ground and pinning him and getting his arm behind him and, like, making him say uncle. Uh, and in that way, everyone understands that Mark Petrie is not someone to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, a serious little kid. Um, there's a God, there's a lot of these kids in, uh, in, in the thing. It is interesting, though, that we're going to go from this to The Shining, uh, which is like the anti-Mark Petrie in some ways mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in that Danny in that novel, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll get there. But yeah, so like these are our people. They all kind of come together in different ways. The, the first, I don't know, half of this book is is patiently slow. Mm-hmm. And the only real things that happen are what we've already talked about, which is that Ben Mir shows up to town and his idea was to uh, lease the uh, Marston Yes, Why the do Marston I think that's house. wrong? Marston? Yeah, the, the Marston house, which is like this, you know, evil-ass house that's like sitting above the town on, on a big hill. And his idea is to lease it and then work out of it and kind of exercise his demons, whatever, while he's writing a novel about Huey Marston, this uh, gangster that lived there, who's mm-hmm. like doing all kinds of bad stuff. And then, But when they get there, or when he gets there, he finds out it's already been leased to somebody. It's been leased to a, a pair called Straker and Barlow, Mm-hmm. Best names, some excellent Stephen King names here. Very, very good vampire names, right? Uh, like. But, uh, but, but the you know, least to them already, and basically they're vampires, or or one is a vampire, one's kind of a familiar, and they have decided to come here based on the invitation of Marston, like fifty years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, Mars, the implication that we get over the course of the novel, and I, it's actually kept very vague, and I really love that. But the idea is that Marston moved there and was murdering children and maybe doing, you know, Satanism-y kind of stuff with it. And he had a long correspondence with uh, Barlow, then known as Breakin, mm-hmm. uh, a, a kind of middle European count. And uh, basically, was ju- they were talking presumably about evil Satan stuff. Mm-hmm. And now, all these years later, Breakin and or Barlow and Straker have moved to the town to start the stuff. And it, I mean, from, from when they move in to when everyone is turned into the vampires is pretty quick. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's a few weeks. I was going to say the the novel, we get some dates in the novel. Uh, so the novel begins on September 5th. Um, 
Ben and Susan tells Ben uh, that she loves him on September 20th. Okay. Uh, Solid 15 days. Yep. Um, so that gives you a sense of like the, the speed at which these characters are operating. Um, and then the town is dead by October 5th. Gotcha. So yeah, so, so a pretty, pretty short time period here. Uh, well, literally just one month, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, but I mean, the, the, that's what's kind of weird about it is that other than these kind of characterization moments about the town and about the characters that we've all talked about and, and the little segments that we've given you about each of these characters is really what we get. I mean, we get little pieces of characterization where they're interacting with one another or whatever, you know, so for example, uh, Matt and Ben meeting at the roadhouse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are really the segments of characterization. It's only when, well, I guess that's happening in the background. We're getting these scenes of the town of, for example, a dog being murdered. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, uh, the Glick children, Glick children being killed. And then one of them being turned into a vampire, mm -hmm. um, which kind of sets the whole thing off. But, but it really is, it's very slow moving and it kind of proceeds like a thriller for every 10 scenes, maybe two of them have to do with the quote unquote plot of the novel and the rest are just characterization and kind of building up, you know, what we know about all these different people. Yeah, it is for a book that is as long as it is, it moves with an incredible speed mm -hmm. is how I would describe it. Like the, especially um once the once the vampire stuff really kicks off at the midpoint it is just like it, it's like a, a roller coaster right click 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 and you hit the top and it just swoops down and it's it's really cool like that a book that sort of this big can read this swiftly yeah i read the the back two-thirds of it probably yesterday i read it read it all in a whack i haven't had a lot of time to read and so i, I just had to sit down and like get through it and i read it maybe in you know eight nine hours something like that Mm -hmm. um and so, but yeah it like goes it goes really really quickly for it um and and if it seems like we're giving if you haven't read the novel and it seems like we're giving kind of short shrift to the plot we're really not this is this is just kind of how it works uh all these characters they each are seeing these kind of vampire moments together or, or not together but individually they're seeing all these little pieces coming up and they are putting things together and it mostly has to do with Ben just happening to be around when some of the bad stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, everyone's out looking for Danny Glick, uh, who, or no, the, the younger one, Ralphie, um, Ralphie, his, uh, his, his younger brother. Um, and I, I guess two brothers, one of which something bad happens to also is a Stephen King thing, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, but so everyone in the town's out looking for this young child who disappears early in the novel and then his brother dies. His brother, uh, Danny, is kind of the first vampire in, in the town, like I said mm -hmm. a second ago. But uh, from that, it's basically one person after another dying for a little while. And Ben Mears just kind of happens to be around or Matt just happens to be around mm -hmm. uh, in order to hear that happen. So, for example, we were talking at the beginning of the episode about uh, the sucking noise. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just because and it's just pure happenstance, Matt and Ben are at the roadhouse and weasel is his name, I think. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Um, they meet, uh, Matt goes to the roadhouse alone and he meets Mike Ryerson. Oh, that's right. That's right. They, I'm, I, yeah, I'm getting the two two things. Uh, I'm conflating them. Yeah. So Mike Ryerson is the, the grave digger in Salem's lot. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who is um, supposed to have buried uh, uh, Danny Glick, who, so we've already said, Ralphie disappears. Um, 
uh, Danny is like in shock. And what has happened is that Straker, who is the familiar to Barlow, the vampire, if 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 Barlow is Dracula, then uh, Straker is his Renfield. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so uh, Straker is the the one who can move around in daylight and sort of set certain things up. Right. He's the one who purchases the Marston house, for example. And he does this by uh you know, uh, sort of bribing uh, the local the local scummy real estate dude, mm-hmm. uh, which is its own kind of like cultural commentary on like 70s America and small towns. But so Straker uh, kills the younger Glick brother and makes his corpse into an official sort of like offering to Satan or whoever. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is one of the things that is necessary to allow uh, Barlow to take up residence in Salem's lot in the Marston house. Um, and then uh, Danny dies mysteriously in the hospital several days later. His he on his you know uh, sheet, it's like he had acute anemia or something. Dun dun dun. Uh, but then Mike Ryerson is burying Danny after his funeral. Um, but he's burying him at sunset, and he like this is a really I love this part of the book where mm-hmm. uh, Mike can't stop thinking about how Danny's eyes are open in the in the casket and it's like uh he, it, it's so great because it's a it's a thing that Stephen King can do really well where like the character is trying so hard not to have this intrusive thought and they're like you know talking about something and the, the narrative voice is very close to to their sort of interior monologue and as as Mike is like talking or thinking about something else and then he swerves back around to why are you looking at me why are you looking at me shut your eyes uh, and then, of course, um, sunsets and uh, things don't go well for Mike because Matt runs into him a few days later at the roadhouse. Uh, Mike is looking really sick. And because Mike is, of course, one of Matt's former students, he's like, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't be driving tonight. Like, come home with me and, you know, stay at my place. We'll see how you are in the morning. And then Matt happens to wake up in the middle of the night after he's put uh, Mike up in the spare bedroom and he hears something going on in Mike's room and he hears like a child's laugh. And then the sucking started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So, but, and so scenes like that are kind of just peppered all throughout the novel of, of people running into vampire kind of stuff. There's the character out at the, who um, works at the dump. So particularly because uh, I find so much of this novel so charming, I've asked Michael if we could do a uh, dramatic rendition (laughs) of some of the dialogue that happens to give you a flavor for what happens when the vampire comes for you. Michael, do you think that's fair? Yes, yes. To give people this vibe, so uh-huh. so I'm going to be playing. Uh, what is what is his name? Dud Dud Rogers. Dud Rogers, who works at the uh, he works at the dump. Uh, he he is also kind of a Stephen King stock character, although I don't think Stephen King ever gets this uh, shitty with it. I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I mean, mean that's that is term. like straight up. This is there are very bad choices made with regard to this character. Yeah, so so he he has a uh, a hunchback. I don't know what the appropriate term for that is, but the, the, that is the term that Stephen King is using in this thing. Um, and he's a town outcast. He works at the dump, uh, and people are fucking mean to him. I mean, it's it's awful the way mm-hmm. that he is treated. But also, he's a real son of a bitch who loves to shoot the rats in the dump. Yes, exactly. So so Stephen King is giving us this kind of thing of like, uh, oh, if you reject him from society, then he'll become bad. 
he'll mm-hmm. he'll become just you know a, the true outsider. So he like loves to shoot and poison rats, and he loves to pretend that they're people in the town, the rats, and then shoot them, particularly women that he finds attractive. It's the whole thing is gross, but that's not what's going on here. There's just a lovely conversation that goes on. So <clears throat> I've been pl- I'm playing Dud Rogers. Michael, you are playing uh, Barlow. Barlow. Okay. I didn't know how you wanted to describe it. Barlow the vampire, perhaps. The he's wearing a three piece suit. This is the first thing you need to know. Dud We're knows in a dump. He's We're wearing in a dump. A, he's wearing a three piece suit in the dump. Um, the face that was discovered in the red glow from the dying fire, because uh, the the dump gets burned down periodically. This is one of the things Dud does. Um, uh, the face that was discovered uh, was high cheekboned and thoughtful. The hair was white, streaked with oddly virile slashes of iron gray. The guy had it swept back from his high, waxy forehead like one of those, I'm not going to say this word, um, but it's the F slur concert pianists. Again, this is like the, the narrative is assuming Dud's perspective, right? So we know that this is like how Dud thinks of this character. Um, the eyes caught and held the red glow of the embers and made them look bloodshot. So that's what that's what uh, Barlow looks like. Mm-hmm. So so Barlow says, uh, just to give me a setup here, he says, I came to watch the fire. It is beautiful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Beginning our dramatic reading. Yeah, D- Dud said. You from around here? I am a recent resident of your lovely town, yes. Do you shoot many rats? Quite a few, yeah. Just lately, there's a million of them little sons of, sons of whores. Say, you ain't the fella who brought the Marston place, are you? Predators, the man said, crossing his hands behind his back. Dud noticed with surprise that the guy was all tricked out in a suit, vest and all. I love the predators of the night. The rats, the owls, the wolves. Are there wolves in this area? No, Dud said. Guy up in Durham bagged a coyote two years back, and there's a wild dog pack that's been running deer. Dogs, the stranger said, and gestured with contempt. Low animals that cringe and howl at the sound of a strange step, fit only to whine and grovel. Gut them all, I say. Gut them all. Well, I never thought of it that way, Dud said, <laughs> taking a shuffling step backward. It's always nice to have someone come out and, you know, shoot the shit, but the dump closes at six on Sundays and it's half past nine now. To be sure. This is the kind of dialogue that you will find in the Stephen King, Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. It, it is too bizarre uh, cartoon characters smashing into each other at maximum speed. <laughs> right. So like this is this is that genre issue, right? Because Dud is a character from uh, like the patchwork novel about the small town and it Arlo is straight up Dracula with the serial numbers filed off. Like there is no <laughs> yes. attempt to, at made to make him anything other than the most stereotypical vampire he could possibly be. It's so good. But so so that's how most of this novel runs out is just like people out like out and about sometimes running into Barlow, sometimes running into other vampires. But uh, but eventually that happens enough in the plot that all the characters that we outlined earlier, they all run together and they come together and they come up with with a plan to, Mm -hmm. to get rid of these damn old vampires. Right. And again, you will notice that this is the plot of Dracula. And this is (laughs) Stephen King is very uh 
upfront about him writing with Dracula as an intertext here, right? He is he is modeling the plot on Dracula. So what happens in Dracula is eventually enough people realize like, hey, I think there's a vampire going around uh, that they band together and they're like, we're going to we're going to take out this vampire. We're going to save everyone. Uh, and they do it in this sort of famously rationalistic way where they find all of the properties that Dracula has bought in London and they like work through them methodically to check all of the basements every day to make sure he's not camped out in one of them. And we have, of course, Van Helsing, who is, uh, you know, the big uh, vampire expert sort of leading this charge. Uh, and one of the readings of Dracula that is fairly common, right? Broad strokes, look into um, horror studies and in, in Victorian studies, and you'll see this kind of argument uh, in variations of it, that Stoker is writing a story about the ability for like Victorian uh, rationalism and sort of scientific uh, thinking to uh, combat and uh, dispel the superstitions of the old world, quote unquote, right? So Dracula, as this old world figure that I've already gestured toward, he tries to invade a uh, new modern London and he is dispatched through, um, not like through a combination of like, uh, obeisance to tradition and superstition, but also the scientific method. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and sort of the big thing for Stephen King, the big thing that differentiates, uh, uh, this novel is modernity fails. The scientific method doesn't work. Yeah, and and a lot of that has to do with uh, at the same time that all these characters are coming together and they're doing the same thing that you just said, right? So they are trying to determine uh, who is at most risk and when can they strike at Barlow and how do they take out Straker? I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of like their thing. Um, and none of that works out. So, so uh, Mark and Susan... Uh, kind of on accident, really, go and attempt to see what's going on at the Marston house. They're captured by Straker. Mm -hmm. um, Susan is basically delivered to Barlow and dies off screen functionally. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Barlow is, in that scene, fucking scary. Because mm -hmm. uh, we, we get this scene where Mark can hear Susan is down in the basement of the Marston house, which we already have all this description of, you know, being just this black space of, of, you know, pure terror. She's down there and you can hear her like kind of calling out for him. And then she screams and then, you know, goes silent and Barlow knows that Mark is out there. And so he is yelling up the stairs at him to come down. He calls him young master. They all keep call Mark Petrie young master. And it's just like, you have lost like already. And this is a hundred pages out from the end of the novel, but it's like you, this guy, this vampire is just out maneuvering you at every step. Uh, but, but that's all to say they are trying to, to do this like kind of, uh, maneuver and none of it works. Uh, Jimmy dies due to a booby trap. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Matt just dies of a heart attack. He has multiple heart attacks and, and eventually mm -hmm. dies from them. And Donald Callahan has, uh, you know, this um, truly terrible ending, mm -hmm. uh, but but it's iconic. I mean, truly iconic in the sense of like it's hard to hard to forget it once you read it. Right. So it's um, so what happens is uh, Callahan gets roped into this, and this is of course based on what I, how I described Callahan earlier. This is what he's been waiting for, right? This is what he has wanted mm -hmm. is sort of this real like confrontation with capital E evil. Uh, so he's got roped into this group, um, and he is sent off with Mark to, so they, they go, the, the group after Susan has turned, then Mark, uh, meets up with, 
uh, with Ben to tell him like, hey, your, your girlfriend's dead. And so then they go to the Marston house, our, our little party, and they stake Susan in the basement, right? They, they, they plan on going down and killing Barlow, but as you say, Barlow is always like one step ahead of them and they go down and Barlow has written them this long, long note, again, just going on about like, you've already lost, I don't understand why you're fighting, this will all be over soon, uh, I've left you a present, uh, which is Susan, and then he also like gives them recommendations on wines that are left in the cellar. A, a true scamp. Yes, right. Like Barlow is is very scampy. Um, uh, so they they stake Susan, which is uh, again a callback to the the staking of uh, Lu- Lucy Westenra uh, in Dracula. So what's interesting here, right? Then is that for all the ways that Stephen King is updating or sort of modernizing the vampire story. Uh, He also brings along a lot of the Victorian kind of baggage or subtext. Uh, And so if you if you haven't read Dracula, one thing you need to know about that book is that the vampires are super sexy, but in a really weird way. Right. It's it's in the way, again, that this is traditionally read, very psychoanalytic, is that uh, the vampire is kind of a, a displacement of a sexual desire of sexual feeling that the Victorians famously were not very comfortable with discussing. And so like, uh, you know, early on in, in Dracula, when Jonathan Harker meets Dracula's brides, this, you know, this famous sort of scene of these three beautiful vampire women who, who try to seduce him, um, this, like the, it, it collapses both, uh, vampirism, uh, and like sexual seduction. Uh, into one thing. And this happens occasionally in this book, but sort of inconsistently. And that's sort of one of the things that's very interesting to me uh, about it uh, is how Stephen King will modernize or will diverge from sort of the Stoker model. But then here, when we get uh, uh, Susan in in the uh, basement, it's Ben who has to drive the stake through their, through her heart because he has slept with her. Yep. And it's uh, like... I, I I don't need to draw you a diagram probably to to explain sort of like the 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 things that are at work here right uh, but it's 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 just it's a very strange little thing that gets uh, carried along and also just for the record like th- th- Susan is not handled particularly well like the way that she just sort of gets pulled off like the the reason she ends up in the situation to begin with the reason she goes up to the house right is because she doubts that they're vampires and she thinks that she can like sort of go off on her own address uh the people living in the marston house and sort of like clear everything up before ben and uh his crew get themselves into trouble and this does not turn out well for her yeah and 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 mark ends up going up with her in like a a pure kind of like arbitrary deus ex machina kind of way Um, right but but yeah i mean i think she so, you know, without going too deep into it, she uh, she's an interesting character for Stephen King because I think much like Carrie has maybe more interiority than some of his later characters um, mm. uh, because we get a lot about her relationship with her mother. But it also really feels like a dude writing about a woman's relationship with her mother. Yes. Um, you her know, mother wants her to settle down and marry a nice boy from town. Yeah, it doesn't particularly feel like it's, um, you know, it, it feels like something that I could like just bang out over the course of 20 minutes, right? To be like, all right, what's the stereotype about women with their mother? Uh, yeah, all right. She's got to get married to this, what's his name, Floyd? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, I wouldn't say that this is like, um, 
any kind of realism. But also, on the other hand, she's a cartoon character as much as anyone else is a cartoon character. It's just mm-hmm. when you get women, women historically in <laughs> literature written by dudes have always been cartoon characters. Right. And so so it's a little bit of a difference, right, of when when even the level of interiority that she has Stephen King inadvertently, I think, uh, ends up running into just normal sexist stereotypes, whereas the other characters feel more like stock characters because men are not always stock characters. Um, and so there, this is, again, much like Carrie, another place where uh, a systemic sexism is running into Stephen King's own particular form of you know implied and implicit sexism, which means that Susan just doesn't get the kind of... of capability or whatever uh, which is unfortunate and i honestly am not sure stephen king ever gets any better than this about this Mm -hmm. but uh you know sort of bracketing that i just wanted to point out like this is some of the weird stuff going on around susan and her end after after she's staked uh they're like okay well we need to find barlow now we need to do something about this uh and the group splits uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy and Ben go back to talk to Matt, who is in the hospital. He had his first heart attack after um, confronting Mike Ryerson, who came back as a vampire to to attack him. Uh, and uh, Father Callahan and Mark go to meet Mark's parents to explain uh, that they need to they need to be careful because vampires are invading. So Mark and and this priest show up. Mark's parents are not at all persuaded and we get a whole bunch about mark's dad who is very interesting and this is uh where king uh makes some of the the sort of like cultural context of this book very explicit uh mark's dad is well he was a professor at a junior college teaching uh finance or something like that mathematics and he took a job in the private sector uh as part of Prudential, which is an insurance agency, right? Oh, he was an economics professor. That was it. Because Mm -hmm. he wanted to see if certain ideas he had about economics, certain theoretical ideas, how they would work in the real world. And it turns out they worked out pretty well. And some other things we know about Mark's dad is that he's a registered Democrat, but he voted for Nixon because the guy that they were running against Nixon was just like a crazy left winger who was going to lead the country to financial ruin. Yeah, this all happens on one page. It is it is Stephen King at his finest of like, we know everything about Mark's dad humanly possible over the space of 350, 400 words. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great. It's great stuff. Right. And so uh, the like what this makes apparent, right, is that this is a post Watergate novel. And so this idea of the small town sort of falling to pieces or people turning on each other and not being really sure who to trust. Um, this is all influencing that. Uh, and, uh, the other thing about Mark's dad is that he is like straight up a rationalist, does not believe in vampires. And he, he thinks something weird is going on. Uh, and Callahan is trying to explain to him like, no straight, like there are vampires, please listen to me. Meanwhile, back in the hospital, uh, Ben and Jimmy are talking with Matt or they meet up with Matt and Matt's like, you split the group. Why did you split the group? Like that was the worst thing possible. Apparently, Matt would have been a pretty good DM, I think. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and then we, we get this sort of, you know, ping-ponging back and forth between these two locations very rapidly because as uh, they go, like, uh, I think it's Mark's dad or maybe his mom goes to call someone to, like, call the hospital to, like, uh, you know, verify some of the things Mark and, and Callahan are saying, and the line is dead. 
and then the se- like the second whoever it is that picks up the phone says the line is dead then the power goes out and that's the end of like the little section in the chapter it's good yeah that's it's like good stephen king stuff uh so uh then what happens is barlow like busts through the kitchen window and uh mark's parents freak out and barlow just like murks them he grabs them and he like you know using his vampire super strength uh literally like smashes their heads together like caves in their skulls and kills them yeah it's it's some dark stuff and also notably too barlow doesn't have to be invited in and this is where the like so vampires have rules and a thing that has been established about the vampires in this book is that they need to be invited in but it like we get this suggestion here like suddenly like barlow is such a powerful vampire you don't have to invite him right like there's a sense that like he's been invited to the town and the town is his yeah yeah like and stephen king goes back later and we'll talk about this when we get there but uh vampires show up in another stephen king novel I'm Mm -hmm. not going to reveal where. And he establishes that Barlow is a type one vampire, (laughs) which has like a different set of rules. But here in this moment, we just think he's really cool. Mm -hmm. We get a bunch of retroactive lore about this. (laughs) Yeah, like a lot of lore (laughs) for some reason. But this is all setting up. There's been a lot of chatter that we've done, but to set up this scene here. So... Right. So uh, Barlow has killed Mark's parents um, and he grabs Mark. Right. He, he's holding Mark hostage. But Callahan pulls out his crucifix and they have this standoff and the crucifix is glowing with with white light. Uh, so we talked about in the last novel how uh, Stephen King doesn't seem to, to think too much of, of religious folks, especially like the religious right wing and fundamentalist Christianity. But. King does have a very deeply Christian kind of sensibility to him, but it's a particular type of non-evangelical, non-fundamentalist Christianity where he is sort of willing to to uh, admit that, like, there could be some power of good in, in like, the cross or Christianity uh, itself, right, as a concept. And Callahan has this glowing crucifix. Uh, he's standing off against Barlow, um, and Barlow makes Callahan a deal. I will let Mark go. If you toss down your crucifix and sort of like face me like faith to faith, right? Your faith in your God, the I don't does he call him call it like the good here or the white or whatever? He, he Bar, I don't know if it's in this scene, but Barlow does use the word the white in that note that we talked about, the letter he writes oh, them. Right, right, he right. says that, you know, they have the power of the white. And he might say it here too, but uh the white is like a concept that we're gonna see a lot over the course of the next 40 years of Stephen King's work. But, right. but, but yeah, he, he says, yeah, you know, you've got your power on your side and I've got my power on my side and let's see which one is, is, you know, more, um, you know, uh, overwhelming. And, and what I love about this is there's a little half a sentence here where Stephen King, where the narratorial voice steps in and says, if, uh, if Callahan had pushed his advantage, then he would have, he would have defeated Barlow. Like the narratorial voice is like Callahan had the opportunity to win here to win. Mm -hmm. I think he says to force Barlow out and win another day. Yes. Um, And then, but that is not what happens. So, so that this challenge emanates forth. And then what does Callahan do? Uh, So Callahan agrees to the challenge. Uh, Mark is let go and Mark runs off. He's very sad about his parents dying, Uh, but he's gone. He's escaped for a bit. And then it's just Barlow and Callahan and Callahan, his his faith falters and he does not put down his crucifix. 
And because he does, as he does not do that, right, as he does not put down the crucifix, the light in it fails and Barlow just walks right up to him, picks up the crucifix, snaps it in half and then, uh, you know, sort of picks up Callahan again with vampire strength uh, and is like, you know, you probably would just think that, you know, I would just turn you into a vampire. But actually, I think there's something, you know, far more interesting to do with you. And so uh, he takes Callahan, forces his face or forces Callahan's face up to his, that is to say, Barlow's neck, um, and then cuts his own vein and presses Callahan's face up to like the bleeding neck, right? And then delivers a sacrament, essentially, right? Or like a, you know, a satanic parody of, of a sacrament. Um, and I actually set down my book on the other side of the room. So I, I lost the uh, precise wording. Uh, but, you know, Callahan does not, like, he keeps his mouth closed against the horrible, horrible vampire blood. Uh, but then the last line is something like, but eventually he drank. Yes. And like, this is, you know, th this is the turning point in the novel of like, oh, we thought maybe uh, things would work out. We thought maybe Barlow might be defeatable. But this is the turning point when it's like, oh, no, they're not they they are not going to win, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or or they are probably not going to win. And yeah. uh, after this, we basically basically the implication here is that uh, uh, Callahan has something like the mark of Cain on him, some evil version of that. And so, uh, you know, he can't go to the church. His hand gets burned when he tries to go back to the church. And so he gets on a bus and just leaves. Mm hmm out of the novel right just just jets out of town uh and like you know he he discards his frock and he's in plain clothes and he has the bus driver like buy him a, a bottle of scotch or whiskey or something because he just basically like he's he's been uh sort of not exactly in denial of his own alcoholism but he sort of thinks around it and by this point he's just like straight up like, yeah, I just want to drink and drink and drink until I can't drink anymore. Like his his faith is totally shattered uh, and he's he's gone. Right. He is out of the novel. Yeah. He's just a broken character. It's, you know, probably one of the most powerful. This is, you know, I said iconic earlier, but I really do think that that Callahan is this iconic King character of like, you know, like things don't work out. And like sometimes the best intentions don't produce nothing they just produce bad stuff and there's no happy ending there's not even I, I think what is so powerful about the callahan stuff is that there's not an ending mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's not as if he dies it's not as if he's redeemed he's just like you know fucks off <laughs> and like that's all he's got right he he flees a town that he knows is becoming a nest of vampires and just just goes right like yeah. he's just like i'm just gone like done and this is after he had had like, you know, this strong desire to fight evil and that's just gone. Right. Because he he met evil and he lost. Yeah. Yeah. And there was no or, or, there was a way around it, but he couldn't meet the challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, just a great, you know, testing of faith uh, kind of uh, writing. Very good. Um, but and then the novels basically almost all over from there. I mean, they they do some more maneuvering. This is when Jimmy dies to uh, by falling down some stairs or falling where some stairs aren't. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're looking for Barlow. You know, they got to try to figure out where he is now that he's not in the Marston house anymore. They figure out he is in the basement of the building that Ben has been living in the whole time. Mm -hmm. The boarding house, and the boarding house. And then they drag him out and they stake him. Yep. And then and they then they leave the town. They do. I love this section. So, so 
they 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 drag Barlow out in the day. They stake him, and then they leave for the night because the, the town is still full of vampires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Barlow is just one big vampire. They, and then they leave for the night, and they come back the, back the next day because Ben feels like he needs to bury Jimmy. He needs to bury Mark's parents, all these mm-hmm. people who have died. And uh, the uh, the he he goes to the to the coffin where uh, Barlow was. And he is trying to see what's left, and it's just the teeth. And he goes to touch them, and they come alive, and they try to bite him. And there's a wonderful little piece of section where he's like, "Please, you know, please let this be over. Please let him let him be dead." Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know. I mean, the novel ends, and it's like those teeth still had like energy around them. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Right. And like the other vampires are just kind of like hanging out. Like, they just live in the town now, right? There, there's a sense that, um, and we've already talked about this this lore that we get retconned in. So Barlow is a type 1 vampire. All of these other vampires are going to be called type 2 vampires, which are basically um, more, like, not as smart, right? They're more like, quote-unquote, animals. Uh, and they just sort of, like, get up in the evening and they want to eat. And that's what they do. And there's actually, like, at, right after they stake Barlow, all of the other people in the boarding house, who, of course, by this point have also been turned, they crawl out of their the, their little cubby hole where they were sleeping. And they are so sort of, like, distressed uh, without their leader that uh, they can't even attack Mark and Ben. Like, all they, they just, like, look at him and they're like, you killed the master? How could you kill the master? And, like, the last shot we see of them is like the Mark and Ben crawling out of the basement and they look back and like the other vampires are just standing around Barlow's casket, like looking into it in like shock. And that's the sense that we have, like this is what all like everyone in Salem's lot basically is a vampire at this point. Um, Those who aren't quickly become vampires. Uh, And like, this is the sense, like there's sort of these weird, like not like not even, they're not really people anymore, right? They don't even have subjectivities because the, the thing that, uh, well, actually, the the woman who runs the boarding house, Ava, she's the only person we get to follow from being human to becoming a vampire. Mm-hmm. And it is it's a really interestingly done scene because she's asleep. And um, one of her boarders whom she's she's an older woman. All of the people in the boarding house mm-hmm. are. Uh, and one of her boarders is also an older uh, guy. He's been there for years and he's also an alcoholic. His name is uh, Weasel Craig. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone calls him Weasel, but she's like the one person in town who still calls him by his real name, which is Ed, because they they have this long history of he basically like they slept together like they had a sort of like romance after her husband died in an accident. Um, and the the relationship didn't keep up, but there's still a kind of fondness between them. And he's a vampire and he's like um, feeding on her in her sleep. And she's having a dream of uh, in the 50s. The town of Salem's Lot almost burned down because there was a huge brush fire. Uh, And she has this dream of it being the 50s and looking out her window and seeing, like, the flames and the town, like, being destroyed. And at this point, her husband is still alive and he's out there fighting the fire and she's worried about him. But then, like, Weasel is behind her kissing her neck and she's very weirded out by this. And as she's watching the flames, the flames like rise into the sky and become it becomes like this psychedelic thing where uh, she is like it's like all darkness and all she can see is Barlow's face and like her her perspective literally disappears right into um, like Barlow just being like, I'm here now. We need to do this, this and this. And then they set up the booby trap that kills Jimmy. 
Yeah, the the implication seems to be that my feeling of that is like the state of being a vampire, of not being kind of a master vampire is mm-hmm. uh, is that you're in that kind of dream world all the time that you, you know, you're kind of caught in all this kind of stuff and you have appetites and desires, you know, you're hungry and things like that. But yeah, like you said, you don't really have subjectivity. You're kind of lost in in a haze mm-hmm. uh, of like non-being, uh, which is which is pretty rough. Um but I'm glad you brought up the fire because that, that shows up all the time over the course of the novel that this fire in 1951 almost burned the town down and was turned back at the last minute. And so that returns us, you know, uh, toward to the prologue. Uh, you know, the prologue was about Ben and uh, uh, Mark fleeing across the country, going to Mexico. And they the whole time they have been keeping track of Salem's lot, like what, you know, they've been getting the, the Portland News Herald or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, a local paper, basically. And, and the interesting part about it is that Salem's lot is such a small town, it can, quote unquote, become a ghost town, right? It can disappear off the map um, and, the, and the world just kind of keeps going, you know, around yeah. it. Um, you know, it's this kind of pre-modern space of like yeah well you know sometimes towns just up and fade away but they keep track of it and they start reading reports of of people writing about it as a ghost town and writing about it of people in the area around salem's lot disappearing or people who buy property in salem's lot because it's abandoned uh, of those people going disappearing and so a year later they decide to go back Mm -hmm. and to to do something about all the vampires that are still there uh, yeah, so by this point, Ben has essentially adopted Mark as his son, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very strange uh, kind of turn, uh, just in in a kind of general sense, like in, in a kind of narrative sense, right? In in the, the Keenian narrative sense, it makes a lot of sense because they are uh, very similar characters, or rather, rather like, they, in terms of personality, they are very similar, right? They're both sort of mm-hmm. like... Uh, you know, dark haired, uh, artistically inclined, sensitive, but nevertheless capable of getting their hands dirty. And in fact, when Ben first meets Mark, uh, the 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 feeling he has, and this is what the, the narrative says, right, is like the feeling of meeting himself when he was a child. So they they have fled together, becoming this weird sort of new family unit. Uh, weirdly enough, right, to me, this very strongly parallels what Barlow and Straker are up to, right? Two people kind of like, you know, skipping around the world together in in sort of mysterious circumstances. Uh, But then, you know, Ben and Mark, uh, or I think it's it's Ben who decides eventually, like, I'm going back. And so they go back to Salem's Lot a year later, and uh, they hang out in a nearby town for a couple of days. They wait until the time is right. Ben is reading all of the weather reports. Uh, He waits until the wind is right, until there's not going to be any rain, until the temperatures are high enough. And then they go back to Salem's Lot during the day, and they uh, throw some matches, some like matches into the woods and start a brush fire. And he talks about how, you know, like, uh, you know, after after the burn's done, like we're going to go through you and I and we're going to find the ones that have left because we're going to take out most of their hiding spaces and then they're going to get confused and sloppy. Yeah, they're going to be on the run, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is not the last time we're going to hear about Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get some pre-info and some post-info in, in later Stephen King work. So uh, we'll, we'll find out if they were successful or not. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Um, other things we didn't talk about. I just want to mention uh, without kind of getting into it. Uh, there's there's a uh, Stephen King hates trailer parks and the people who live in them. Uh huh. Which which is him. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say which yeah. is ironic because he writes part of this novel while living in a double wide with his family. 
Yeah, uh, but but there's yeah exactly. But there's this uh, you know if if uh, the protagonists of Stephen King novels are um, generally cultured and like good old middle America and middle class people, the kind of cultural outsiders are almost always poor people and things like that. So we get um, you know an abusive relationship and then a woman who is like beating her child mm-hmm. um, and you know stuff like that being her baby not even a, i mean it's a child but it's a baby mm-hmm. um and it's it's just this uh very explo- exploitation cinema almost kind of thing of like this is this is what poor people are up to mm-hmm. uh you know like who have kids too young uh there's some of that um and that gets tied into i think a broader narrative of repeatedly multiple times barlow says this and then callahan says it too i think but basically that that you know uh, american culture in the 1970s is so caught up with violence in the media and things like that, that it's a, a fertile ground for vampires because we're already like bloodthirsty culturally already. Um, there, there's this kind of co- critique of American media going on. That's that I don't think is like what Stephen King is saying. I think it is Stephen King, uh, poking fun or, or being a little, uh, responsive to, you know, the horror movies are bad for you kind of vibe. Yeah, can I, I want to read this, actually. This is what yeah, Barlow, sure. so Barlow says this not to Dud Rogers, but it's a very similar scene. This is a character named, uh, uh, his last name is Bryant. Oh, Corey Bryant, who's a, a county lineman um, mm. working on the power lines. He's having an affair with this woman. Uh, he's She's a little bit older. She's married to a guy who is like a huge piece of shit. Uh, and this takes place just after Corey Bryant gets run out of the house by, uh, the man he is cuckolding, uh, who is wielding a shotgun, right? He, he nearly kills them both. And then he starts beating up his wife. So, uh, Bryant is running away. Um, and he happens as he's fleeing, he runs into a, a strange man, uh, wearing a three piece suit standing by the side of the road. And they have some, they have some back and forth. They talk, uh, this is how Barlow describes the, the sort of like what drew him to, to Salem, to America in general, and to Salem's lot in particular. Do you know how beautiful the people of your country and your town are, Mr. Bryant? Cor- Corey only chuckled, slightly embarrassed. He did not look away from the stranger's face, however. It held him wrapped. By the way, I don't think we've made this explicit. The vampires can hypnotize you. Look at their mm-hmm. face and you're basically done for. They have never known hunger or want, the people of this country. It has been two generations since they knew anything close to it, and even then it was like a voice in a distant room. They think they have known sadness, but their sadness is that of a child who has spilled his ice cream on the grass at a birthday party. There is no... how is the English? Attenuation in them. They spill each other's blood with great vigor. Do you believe it? Do you see... Yes, Corey said, looking into the stranger's eyes. He could see a great many things, all of them wonderful. The country is an amazing paradox. In other lands, when a man eats his fullest day after day, that man becomes fat, sleepy, piggish. But in this land, it seems the more you have, the more aggressive you become. You see, like Mr. Sawyer, uh, that's the guy who's who uh, he was sleeping with his wife, with so much, yet he begrudges you a few crumbs from his table. Also like a child at a birthday party who will push away another baby, even though he himself can eat no more. Is it not so? So again, some more great Barlow dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is sort of the idea, right? This idea that uh, Barlow, who is this old world figure, is fascinated by the, the like American hunger 
for mm-hmm. things, for stuff. And so there's a real, like, angle of cultural critique there. Even, like, there's the parts that I think, you know, Stephen King is poking fun at uh, the, you know, the American cultural violence or whatever. Um, and at the same time, if we're thinking about this post-Watergate, if we think about this with Mark's dad, who, uh, you know, was registered Democrat but voted Nixon because the other guy was going to ruin it all. And the other thing that Mark says after <laughs> after his father dies is, like, my dad would have been a great vampire. Yeah, that's his, like, kind of final, like, my dad is cool uh-huh. thing that he's got. Is my dad would have been awesome as a vampire. Right. So there, there is this real sense of uh, the the culture of America, uh, quote-unquote, changing, uh, you know, maybe post-Nixon, post-Watergate, post-60s, let's say. And one of the casualties of this cultural sea change is that towns like Salem's Lot wither up and disappear. And yeah, and there's something going on here too with the uh, the kind of old world culturedness of Straker and Barlow. The the kind of cover they have for coming into Salem's Lot is that they are uh, uh, antique dealers. Yes. Right? And so there's something different from that culture, that culturedness, which is maybe a little bit to be distrusted and the like culturedness of Ben Mears, which is like the American culturedness of like, I read and I do art, man. And I like, I you know, I go and I write my 10 pages every day and that's the working man's thing i don't mm-hmm. sell antiques <laughs> well uh, straker you know. and barlow are often uh, suggested like the people in the town are like oh they're they're like the word that is used like they're queer for each other right mm-hmm. like yeah. they are understood so there's a there's a recurring notes of gay panic throughout this novel um yeah and, there, there yeah. is like it, it, and it shows up in weird places too there's one when they're in the hospital uh like there's a uh, thrown off note that's like there's a homosexual who was shot outside of a club yeah and it's just like I don't like for of all the information that is included in this this novel, that's a very specific and weird thing to choose, Steve. Yeah, and um, it's it's also very interesting because so this is 1975. Um, Interview with a Vampire by by Anne Rice comes out the next year, 1976, and that makes uh like this this sort of uh you know fictional artistic link between uh the vampire and the homosexual and sort of from this there there unfolds a kind of reading of vampirism as aids metaphor mm-hmm, yeah which is latent in this book because it comes before all of that it's so strange yeah yeah absolutely so there's all kinds of more stuff i think that we could talk about we could talk for another two hours about this but uh let's get our let's get our little segments in here all right what do we want to start with What's your favorite kingism in this book? So, <clears throat> my favorite kingism in Salem's Lot uh, happens close to the midpoint. Uh, for some context, this is in Matt Burke's house, where he uh, so Mike Ryerson, who has spent the night, is dead. Right. So the the sun rises and uh, Matt calls Ben over and is like, "I think there's a dead man in my house, and also I think there are some vampires." And then they call in uh, Jimmy Cody and possibly the sheriff. No, no, no. The constable, Parkins Gillespie. Um, Basically, right. There's a dead man here. A bunch of people show up. Uh, Ben is one of them. Uh, Yeah, they go upstairs. uh, And as they're walking up, Ben thinks to himself, now, if we only played instruments, Ben thought, we could give the guy a real send off. The reason this is a kingism is that this is a this is a technique that King uses again and again and again. And I always love it. Uh, is the character uh, thinking something totally inappropriate in in a moment of like horror or gravitas and trying to restrain laughter? And it's always there's something so authentic about the fact that like 
Ben's idea, like, oh, if we all had, if we all played instruments, we could make a band, essentially. It's thematically, it's not like this isn't giving us foreshadowing for what's going to happen later. It's not like a suitably creepy kind of comparison. No, it's just like this straight up random like neurons firing. Man, if we all played instruments, we could give the guy a real send off. Uh, mine is uh, that it's very good. Uh, mine, mine is for when they're actually talking to the sheriff later. Uh, I think it's actually in the same event. Um, but uh, he says... So it's like Matt and Ben have told him a story that's not entirely true. And he says uh, this, you're lying to me, McCaslin said patiently. I know it. These deputies know it. Probably even old Mo knows it. I don't know how much you're lying, little or a lot, but I know I can't prove you're lying as long as you both stick to the same story. I could take you both down to the cooler, but the rules say I got to give you one phone call. And even the greenest kid fresh out of law school could spring on you, uh, could spring you on what I got which could best be described as suspicion of unknown hanky-panky. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I bet your lawyer ain't fresh out of law school, is he? No, Jimmy said. He's not. Um, and this, this, it's just, uh, I, I, there's another technique that, that Stephen King uses, which is like, a dude with good old-fashioned down-home knowledge knows there's something going on here, and not everyone's telling the truth, and we're going to get it in kind of a funny way, but that's giving you an idea that like, the characters who are not the principal characters are not in the dark about what's whatever's happening. Mm -hmm. um, this get, this happens again, I think, with Gillespie, that character at the end of the novel, where uh, Ben Mears like goes and tries to tell him about vampires, and he's like, "Yeah, there's vampires here, and it sucks. I'm leaving this town." <laughs> I love that part because, like, this is one of my favorite parts of that novel because that happens right after. So, like, you know, the night that Barlow kills. Uh, Mark's parents and uh, uh, you know uh, Stains Callahan and whatever that's like the night where shit really kicks off in Salem's lot and it talks about how Parkins Gillespie who's the town constable sits in the municipal building all night because he's already suspicious of something right he's seen people moving around town and he's noticed folks aren't out when they should be and so on and it talks about how he sits in the municipal building all night and he can just hear people like at different points in the town screaming like just occasional screams. And at one point he hears like someone running by in the darkness. And so in the next morning he comes out and he's like wearing a crucifix, a St. Christopher's medal and a peace sign. And that's when they, that's when Mark uh, and uh, Ben run into him and he's like, yep, vampires, I'm leaving. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we know from like the, um, the information, right. The, the clippings that we get in the book, we know that he just like, you know, went and lived with his sister. Yeah, and, and like, then the interviewer tries to ask him about what happens in Salem's Lot, and he's just like, I moved. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. but uh, And you were saying, we were talking about this before the episode, but you, you were saying that uh, I said that was a lot like Lost Boys, right? The end of Lost Boys, where he's like, fucking vampires, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and you were saying that there's there's a connection between those two things. Oh, I yeah, I can't find um like hard evidence where the the team behind Lost Boys like cites this, but when if you've seen Lost Boys, like the idea of a ghost, like a, a ghosty vampire boy hovering outside of a window, um, is is a thing that is huge in that movie and shows up here, right? That is where this mm -hmm. comes from, and it becomes a kind of staple of contemporarily set vampire fiction. Um, Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Mm hmm. Where we talk about the music in this novel, did you you didn't listen to any of the the music in this novel? No, I did not because there was not a lot. There's not, uh, and some of it's like weirdly hidden. But mm -hmm. uh, here here are three songs that I found from uh, from this novel. I listened to them, and I'll give you a star rating real quick. 
Okay. Number one, Merle Haggard, Oki from Muskogee. Uh, this is playing in the uh, in the bar that mm-hmm. they go to, the roadhouse they go to. Uh, it's fine. Three stars. Just a good old-fashioned Merle Haggard song. A little, little bit of country western for you. Uh, the second song is, is uh, the lyrics are quoted in epigram for this book, um, but it's just cited as old rock song. It doesn't have a thing, but it's a song called Endless Sleep by Marty Wilde, and it's like a rockabilly track. <laughs> um that's about like someone dying in the ocean basically huh. it's pretty good I, i'm gonna give it a solid four four stars okay it was worth listening to and of course there's a bob dylan song mm-hmm. um north country blues which is also quoted in the same epigram uh half a star because <laughs> it's a bob dylan song mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the this is like the 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 surprise b plot of just king things is this war on bob dylan yeah well you know what <laughs> uh you know he can have his podcast about me where he where he makes fun of me um and uh what in the king verse oh yeah this is a new segment yeah so you know obviously stephen king famous for uh interconnecting a lot of his stories and things like that of, of bringing these things together uh some big connections i think to to stuff what, what did you notice that connects to the rest of stephen king stuff other than characters obviously well you've already mentioned that uh we're, we're going to get some like almost like prequel information for Salem's Lot and also some like weird sequel information. And I just wanted to lay out here um, like a little more clearly is that this is not the first time King tried to write about Salem's Lot. Uh, This is, he is revisiting this location from an earlier short story he wrote uh, that's going to get collected in Night Shift, which we'll read very, very soon called Jerusalem's Lot, because that's the full name of the town. And we get the sense that um, people start abbreviating it because it's easier to say Salem's Lot than Jerusalem's Lot. The actual reason is that uh, the publisher didn't want King to call the novel Jerusalem's Lot because it made it sound religious. So mm. <laughs> anyway, uh, and just to sort of like, you know, establish this, uh, like recurring, uh, recurring towns, recurring locations is going to get very, very big for King, especially later on. Uh, but what is interesting about, uh, Salem's lot slash Jerusalem's lot, the story, uh, is that it is him borrowing this trope from HP Lovecraft, who's actually a writer that I mentioned last time. He is a new England horror writer. He creates Cthulhu. He's much more well-known now than he was when King, uh, was writing these novels. He was very obscure and sort of half forgotten for a while. Also should be noted, like famously, uh, just unapologetically racist, um, and his politics, uh, in, in general, were not great. He was very reactionary. Uh, there's, there's a lot of baggage with Lovecraft, um, but one of the sort of, like, hallmarks of his ingenuity, as, as it is acknowledged, is, uh, the creation of an entire sort of fictional New England location, uh, that all of his stories take place in and have kind of like weird ripple effects on uh, with each other. And here we see in his second novel, King setting himself up to do just that. Yeah, because Salem's Lot itself is going to get mentioned, but none of his other kind of uh, big fictional locations, none of them are in this novel, right? So Castle Rock and Derry being the two... Mm-hmm you know, kind of big ones. I, were they mentioned or not? They were not. No, he okay. hasn't, he hasn't invented the others yet, but like it's Jerusalem's lot is his first one. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just right. wanted to make sure that I didn't, yeah. didn't miss yeah. something. Um, and the, the other big thing I think here, as far as I can remember, but the thing that you and I have talked about quite a bit while we've been reading this is that the basic idea for, well, well, 
first thing, the white as a concept is going to show up quite a bit mm-hmm. over the course of Stephen King's work. But the the other big thing is the basic concept for The Shining is kind of previewed here. The idea mm-hmm. that a location such as the lot or even the Marston house that uh, evil performs somewhere, it leaves a kind of impression or a psychic aftermath or or can kind of pool somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, that so that that's mentioned about the Marston house in this book four times. Maybe it's it's actually kind of mentioned enough that it gets a little like okay steve we get it we get the idea that you're going for here um but that's the basic idea for the shining Mm -hmm. and it's specifically the the comparison that is always made is that the evil place is like a dry battery that -hmm. will absorb a certain type of energy and then cast that back out so yeah that is straight up like this is this is the entire explanation for how the overlook hotel in the shining works uh it's also something that stephen king revisits in his tv miniseries of the early 2000s rose red Hmm. Uh, the uh, so the next book we're reading is the shining right it is um, and so it's going to be interesting because uh, just to preview a little bit, The Shining is is kind of melding two big ideas that have showed up here. So uh, in Carrie, psychic stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in, in Salem's Lot, this idea of like place as evil or place as dry battery, as you're saying. And, you know, not to not to preview too much, but The Shining has both psychic stuff and this dry battery idea. Mm hmm. Um, so, so I, you know, that's carrying forward directly in a very apparent way that we're going to see really soon. Uh, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. Where can they find you, Cameron? At C Kunzelman on Twitter. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support the show for as little as a dollar a month. We would love for you to do that. This is a Patreon supported show. We began doing it because, uh, enough people supported us over there and you could be one of those if you're not already uh if you support us at three dollars a month you get a little bit of extra stuff and at five dollars a month you get even more extra stuff and i'll tell you this uh if you go and support us over there we're thinking about doing a little bit of bonus content for this show uh, we've talked about maybe doing a commentary track for uh carrie or salem slot or just watching it and talking about the movies a little bit um i'm gonna put that up in the you're not going to hear this for a month but for the august uh patreon update i'm going to kind of throw some ideas out there and we're going to see what the community thinks so if you want to uh, get a little bit more king thing <laughs> then you can support us over there you can also go to twitter.com slash range touch to see everything that we're up to and you can see our youtube videos at youtube.com slash range touch we make a show called too much future about the fallout games uh, very kind of similar conceptually to the show um, and you can also check out Game Studies Study Buddies, which is our show where we read books of game studies and then we talk about them and make them accessible uh, to people as much as we can. Uh, until next time, I want to suck your blood. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Keep, keep that in and do this okay. one. Okay. <clears throat> until next time, one donut. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Two donut. <laughs> Uh, 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 uh. See you next month on Just King Things. (laughs) 